Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Anna Carter Florence, Associate Minister at the Church, moderator of today's forum, and our guest is Jesse Allen, Director of the Project on Women and Population Aging for the Southport Institute for Policy Analysis and co-editor with Alan Pfeiffer of Women on the Front Lines, Meeting the Challenge of an Aging America. By the year 2030, one in five Americans will be over 65 years of age. Women are the majority of the elderly and provide most of the care. Ms. Allen has been studying these trends and their very serious social and economic impact for women. And today, she will speak to us on some of her findings. The title she has chosen is the same as that of her important book, Women on the Front Lines, Meeting the Challenge of an Aging America. Ms. Allen, it is an honor to have you with us today, and we look forward to what you have to say to us. Welcome. Thank you. And I'm certainly honored to be here in this beautiful sanctuary. I said before to the people who were uh, meeting me that I was going to have a hard time tearing my eyes off that beautiful window in front of me, but I'm looking at my speech, but anyway, we'll get down to it. <clears throat> I have a friend who says that the only thing they tell you when you're a child about what it's like to get older that turns out to be true is that the older you get, the faster time goes. Everything else is baloney, she says. So it takes a while to realize that this magical acceleration of time is actually a fact of aging. Now, from my perspective, I can certainly confirm that the older I get, the more I never seem to have enough time to do anything. And it does seem like it's getting worse every year. For the last seven years, I've been spending a good deal of my time studying the information and attitudes that we have about a different kind of aging, population aging. I've been directing a social policy project about the changes taking place in the US now that our society includes a larger number of elderly people and proportionately fewer young ones. This is because of lowered birth rates and increased life expectancies, as I'm sure most of you know. Now, in the process of this study, I've discovered, as my friend did, that an awful lot of the received wisdom really doesn't capture the realities of this dramatic change. That's because most descriptions of the aging trend overlook or undervalue the experiences and perspectives of more than half the population, namely women. In the very short time that I have here today, I'll try to give you an overview of the problems and opportunities women face in our aging society. And I'll also explain why I think the aging trend's impact on women has important ethical and political implications for all of our futures. As you heard, the title of my presentation today is Women on the Front Lines, Meeting the Challenge of an Aging America. So let me start by defining my terms. The front lines of what? What exactly do I mean by an aging America? Well, 
As I said before, the American population is aging. Families have fewer children in them than they used to, and more people are living longer than ever. As a result, older Americans make up an expanding portion of our population. Now, this long-term trend has recently accelerated and is about to explode because of the aging of the very large baby boom generation. Let me give you just a few facts to outline how dramatic this change is. According to the U.S. Bureau of the Census, at the turn of the last century in 1900, about 3 million people in the U.S. were age 65 and over. That's the age that we usually mean when we say the elderly. Now, as we cross into the next century, the elderly will number 35 million. Back in 1900, just one in 25 Americans was elderly. Today, the proportion is one in eight. Starting in about 2010, when this big baby boom generation, the 75 million or so people that were born between the Second World War and the mid-60s, when they reach old age, by 2030, as you heard, one in five Americans will be elderly. So we will have gone from one in 25 in 1900 to one in five in 2030. I'd say that's a major social change. But within this growing elderly population, there's another trend that may be even more significant. The number of Americans aged 85 and older has quintupled just since 1950 and will double again by 2010. This very elderly group now numbers 3 million, but by the middle of the next century, it's conservatively projected to reach 18 million. Now, this change is especially important because disability rates in this very elderly group are very high. Nearly one in four of these very elderly Americans are institutionalized, and many, many more are being cared for by relatives at home. Practically every day, there's something in the papers that relates to some aspect of the aging trend, a story about rising Medicaid costs and a state's struggle to cope, or worries about the solvency of the Social Security Fund once the baby boom starts retiring. What you're less likely to see discussed, although it forms the subtext of most of these stories, is the aging trend's dramatic and, in fact, disproportionate impact on women. So why are women on the front lines of the aging trend? I'll give you three main reasons. First, most older people are women. Second, women of all ages are usually the ones who take care of older people who are disabled. And third, older women and men face very different prospects in old age. Elderly women are more likely to live alone, to be disabled, and to be poor. Now, more older people are women because women typically outlive men. About 60% of Americans age 65 and over are women, but at older ages, the proportion starts to climb. Past the age of 85, women outnumber men by nearly three to one. In other words, nearly three out of four of the oldest old Americans are women. But the golden girls notwithstanding, a single older woman isn't the image that most of us carry around with us of normal old age partly because of all those pictures of gray-haired couples on the golf course, and partly, I think, because in some way, a single woman of any age is still regarded as abnormal. 
We don't know why women live longer than men. Some people say it's biology, some say it's society. Some think it's a combination of the two. I have to admit that occasionally I think of it as poetically just, but usually only when I've been provoked. It isn't only elderly women who are affected by the aging trend. Women of all ages care for the frail and disabled elderly. Population aging means that women will be more likely to be called upon to care for a disabled relative. Women may be pressured to quit their jobs or at least take time off to provide care. So they'll most likely be losing income and social security credits for their own old age. Older women who are already out of the workforce may discover that their retirement is filled up with the hard work of caregiving. Partly because they live longer, older women are more likely than men to live alone. They're also more likely to suffer chronic illness, to be institutionalized, and to be poor. Women make up three quarters of the elderly poor today. In fact, to a very great extent, the social and economic problems of the elderly are the problems of women. Now, these three main areas of concern for women in an aging society overlap and interact. See, the fact that women continue to do the work of unpaid elder care, this work that doesn't carry any pension credits, is not unrelated to the fact that women are vulnerable to poverty in old age. And the fact that most very old people are women may be one of the reasons that our still male-centered society hasn't put much energy or much money into preventing chronic illness in old age. It's only recently, though, that studies of aging have begun to acknowledge the profound differences between the experiences of women and men. Americans age 65 and over are still grouped together and referred to as the elderly. It's almost as though we assume that people are more alike at older ages than at young ones. Well, of course, this isn't true. In fact, you could argue that people get more different from one another as they age because of their long lives that continue to diverge. But naturally, we have to make some generalizations in order to talk about a group. I'm just suggesting that if we regroup the elderly by gender, by race, and by marital status, some very striking pictures emerge. Let's start with marital status. Most of the elderly are married, true, but most elderly women are not. In fact, the older she is, the less likely a woman is to be married. 70% of men age 75 and older are married but only one in four women that age has a husband. So much, for, so much for the golfing couples, at least as far as elderly women are concerned. Now, partly because they're much less likely to have a spouse to take care of them when they fall ill, women make up 75% of elderly nursing home residents. Women also make up 75% of the elderly poor. Now, when I first started working on this subject, I'd see these figures of such and such percentage of people living in poverty or below the poverty line. I had a general notion that that meant they had a pretty low income, but I wasn't prepared for just how low it really was. In 1990, in order for a single person age 65 and older to be counted as officially poor, 
she or he had to have an annual income less than $6,269. And about 15% of elderly women met that stringent definition. I think most of us would probably agree that an income below one and a half times that figure, below about $9,500 a year, would still qualify as insufficient. About a third of all elderly women were in that category. Poverty is concentrated among single women. Only 5% of elderly women in married couples are poor, compared with nearly 25% of those who live alone. So when you hear statistics quoted about the very low levels of poverty among the elderly and about how much improvement there's been, remember that elderly men and elderly couples are a lot better off than single women. And then also remember that most elderly women are single. Race and ethnicity are also important factors for economic status in old age. 38% of elderly black women are poor. 25% of elderly Latinas live in poverty. And in contrast, only 6% of elderly white men are poor. The different factors can add up to create even more extreme differences. Race, gender, and living status all contribute to the fact that an appalling 60% of elderly black women who live alone are poor. Women's poverty in old age is a complex function of their lifelong work roles in employment, paid employment, and as family caregivers. Discrimination in the labor market and in pension policies, women's tendency to work in traditionally lower paid so-called female occupations, and women's unpaid caring work all contribute to the likelihood that women's later years will be far less comfortable than older men's. And even though most younger and middle-aged women today are in the paid labor force, future generations of older women may still face economic insecurity. Contrary to the popular images that we often see of young female executives, most women today, young and old, work in low-paid sales, service, and clerical occupations. There are some hopeful signs. The wage gap between women and men has narrowed recently, and more women today have some pension credits from their own work records. Younger women also have more formal education than their elders as a rule, and higher education levels do translate into higher wages. They don't, however, equalize men and women's earnings. A woman with a college degree still earns only slightly more than the average man with a high school diploma. Overall, women's weekly earnings still only average three quarters of what men earn. So, although a lot has changed in women's work roles, these aren't changes that will necessarily guarantee that tomorrow's older women are going to be better off. One thing that has changed hardly at all is women's responsibility for family care. This is an amazing social phenomenon to me. Think about it. 40 years ago, most family care was provided by women and most women worked only at home. Today, most of this caring work is still being done by women, but now women also make up nearly half of the paid labor force. It's incredible to me that there hasn't been a single major change in public policy or workplace norms and structures to accommodate this enormous social and economic shift. 
Actually, I think the most remarkable thing is how little attention is paid to this basic fact of women's working life. For me, a subject like sexual harassment, though it's obviously important, pales beside this. It's like you started to fix up your kitchen and you concentrated on smoothing out the bumps in the linoleum without realizing that underneath the floor, the foundation was shifting and maybe sinking. The foundation of much of the inequity women still experience at work is their continued assumption of most unpaid family care. It seems clear to me that as long as women are doing two jobs, one paid and one not, while most men do just one for pay, men will have an advantage in the world of paid work that's bound to translate into increased power and earnings in that arena. And as long as women earn less than men, they are more likely to be the ones who leave paid work to provide unpaid care. So they reinforce each other. Also, remember that doing this work doesn't entitle you to any retirement or disability benefits. So time out of the workforce for family care is likely to lower your retirement income. The growing numbers of disabled elderly Americans could compound and extend women's caregiving burden. In the coming decades, this added caring work could slow women's progress toward a labor force position equal to men's and toward full social and economic equality. But there's also a positive potential here, I think, because this new demand for a different kind of care is putting more pressure on an unfair and inefficient system that's already strained with women having to take care of children while working at jobs that don't accommodate that care. So something has to give. And if it gives in the right direction, we could wind up with a better caregiving system all around, one that responds to the needs of caregivers and compensates them fairly. The fact is that our democratic society promises equal opportunity with regard to sex, but the high standard of living in this society disproportionately benefits men and it is subsidized by the unpaid, caring work of women. The growing demand for a new kind of unpaid care at a time when most women also work for pay calls all of this into question. It's by no means certain, though, that the society's responses to the aging trend will benefit women. For one thing, many of the caregivers of the elderly are elderly themselves, so they're already out of the workforce and out of the public eye. Others may be nearing retirement, so it may not be noticed if elder care forces them out of their jobs prematurely. The danger of this work remaining invisible is great, especially when you consider how hard it's been to call attention to the needs of childcare. The aging trend can only help us reform dependent care if we bring the elder care situation into sharp focus. So in the remaining time I have, I'll try to give you a picture of the expanding elder care demand and a more personal view of a particular caregiving situation. The fact that more of us are living longer at the same time that we have fewer children means that elder care is moving from the margins to the center of family care. In 1950, one out of three 50-year-old women had a living mother. Today, it is two in three. In the future, more and more middle-aged people will have surviving parents, aunts, and uncles who may need care. 
depending on developments in healthcare delivery and medical technology. We may begin to see people staying healthy longer, or we may see more people's final years taken up with chronic illness and disability. In any case, the population projections alone are enough to tell us that barring a miracle, the enormous increase in numbers of the very old will mean a dramatic increase in the need for long-term care. One out of four very elderly people is currently institutionalized. But studies show that the vast majority of care for the disabled elderly is still provided at home by unpaid women, sometimes supplemented by paid home care services. The rising nursing home costs paid by the Medicaid program and the high cost of adding long-term care coverage to a national health insurance program are often debated in the press now that we're nearing the date when the Clinton administration will deliver its new health care plan. It's true that long-term care costs are high, but as high as these costs are, they're just a fraction of what they would be if the entire system were not subsidized by women's unpaid labor and by the very low wages of paid home health care workers. Who are family caregivers to the elderly? And what do they do? Caregivers are usually women, wives, daughters, or daughters-in-law of the person who needs care. But men do sometimes provide care. Husbands and sons make up 21% of caregivers. And in rare cases, when an elderly disabled woman has a husband, he's most likely to become her primary caregiver. The average age of caregivers is the late 50s, but mo many are a good deal younger or older than this. 80% of caregivers provide care seven days a week, including caregivers who are also in the workforce. So it's not too surprising that one study estimated that 9% of caregivers nationwide had actually quit their jobs in order to provide care. Among those who maintained paying jobs, many rearranged work schedules, cut work hours, took time off without pay. For many women, the caregiving experience takes an unfortunate toll that affects their future economic security. The work of elder care encompasses a wide range of activities and situations. It can mean helping your mother-in-law with her housework and trips to the doctor. Or it can mean feeding, washing, and diapering your completely bed-bound husband. This last possibility is something we all flinch away from. As my 75-year-old mother, who was recently providing total care for my disabled father, said, who would ever want to think about this if you didn't absolutely have to? But there are millions of women like her who do have to think about it, or who will have to someday. And it's something we're going to have to think about as a society if we're going to find a way to cope with the effects of population aging. One of the aspects of caring work that I think is often overlooked is the ethical issues caregivers face, not just in a crisis in the hospital, but on a daily basis at home. Maybe because we see this work as menial and unskilled, we have a tendency to miss the very complex ethical problems caregivers have to analyze. Caregiving isn't stupid work. And if we recognize the moral and intellectual challenges it presents, we might be more likely to place a higher value on it.
To illustrate this point, I thought I'd read an excerpt from an interview I did recently with a woman in her mid-70s who's caring for her chronically ill husband at home. This man is 86 years old and suffering from emphysema and Parkinson's. He's usually mentally loosened, but occasionally he forgets things and sometimes he seems to lose touch with reality altogether. He's bedbound and almost totally unable to do anything for himself. But his heart is strong and there's no reason to think he might not live for several more years until his emphysema eventually kills him. But recently, He's been not drinking enough of his liquid diet. He's losing weight, and eventually, if he doesn't get more nutrition, he'll starve to death. So in this interview, the caregiver is talking about a difficult decision that she has to make, whether or not to go along with the visiting nurse's suggestion that a feeding tube be put down the man's nose so that he can get more nutrition and perhaps gain some weight back. The caregiver says, He's able to drink, and uh, it's just that he has absolutely no interest in it, you know? It just keeps him alive, what he does take. So I don't know. I hate to see him go to the hospital, because I know they're not going to do anything for him. He's thinking in a negative way, which is not surprising, because he doesn't have any real hope for a future. And he's already expressed that. He says, well, I've lost all hope. I know I, there's no future, but that was a long time ago. I don't know whether he'd express that now. He's, uh, you know, we always talk about it being good to express things and say how you feel, and you have a better understanding yourself of how you feel. He's one who avoids talking about things, and he once said to me, I can stand just about anything as long as I don't have to talk about it. So I don't try to push him to talk. On the other hand, that could just be another way of, well, not facing it at all. Here the interviewer says, also it leaves you completely alone with the decision. The caregiver goes on. Exactly, exactly, yeah, uh-huh. But he, when I thought there was a possibility of something like a stomach tube and I mentioned it to him, would you accept it? He said yes, which surprised me, but he's... He is also well known for saying he wants something, and when it comes down to it, he doesn't want it. The other thing that makes it hard is that sometimes to me he seems perfectly clear in his mind. We talk about certain things, not much talk, but a little bit of talk sometimes. Uh, and then other times he's, he's saying to me, I've got to get my clothes on now and get up and I've got to go to work. And I think this is real with him. I think that he... Really, at that moment, he thinks that. But then, a little later, he's right here, talking about, you know, no, I don't want that drink. You know. The other day, when he kept refusing to eat anything, I said to him, I said, you know what you're doing is you're starving yourself by default. If you really want to starve yourself, I think you ought to do it consciously. I think you ought to make a conscious decision. That hit home. <laughs> I mean, he understood that, and, and then he drank more of the Ensure. So I think he's ambivalent, you know? Is it worthwhile forcing myself to drink more of this stuff that I'm not too interested in anyway, and I can't eat anything else, or is it not? And I think that's where he is. And to me, that ambivalence is the natural. That, that would be naturally the way a person would be feeling. 
but it really hurts to see Phil go down the way he has when you remember what he was, you know? That's a real hard thing. I keep asking myself, what else could I do? What could I do that would help? At the same time asking myself, gee, wouldn't it be nice if I had some more time and I could run off to do some things? You, I have these same feelings. I think people underestimate how much ambivalence people have about everything. Well, I think this excerpt reveals how the ambivalence of the patient and the caregiver can mesh. In this case, neither one is sure they want to go on, but both do, at enormous physical, emotional, and financial cost. And the decision to go on is one that the primary caregiver has to reach entirely by herself over and over and over again. But what are the alternatives? This man is getting care at home that would cost a very great deal in a nursing home, maybe forty dollars or $45,000 a year. He can avoid institutionalization because of his wife's heroic effort, but also because this couple has some savings that they're able to use to pay for additional home care assistance. Medicare, the federal health insurance program for the elderly, does not pay for long-term non-medical care. In this case, it does pay for a visiting nurse who comes about once a week to supervise and a nurse's aide who comes daily for about half an hour to bathe and turn the patient who's too heavy for his wife to move. Her other help consists of a woman who comes three afternoons a week and another one who comes to sit overnight four times a week. See, care of this intensity is a 24-hour operation. With the additional cost of equipment and medicines, the bill for this home health care comes to about $14,000 a year, which this elderly couple can afford for a few years. But if they weren't able to pay, and if the wife wasn't willing or able to do the hard work of home care, this man would be in a nursing home, quickly eating away their assets, probably reducing both of them to poverty, and then costing the Medicaid pro program $40,000 a year. Now, certainly not all elder care is so grueling or so expensive, but I think this example reminds us of the very great contributions to society that elder care providers make, and it suggests that we should be looking for better ways to support them. It also points to the expanding importance of the paid home health care worker's job as the society ages. But the expansion of these jobs also raises ethical questions. Home health care workers are almost all women and disproportionately women of color. The U.S. Department of Labor estimates that these jobs will nearly double in the next decade. I recently received a circular from them. It's one of those uh, advertising type things and it announces blithely that in the category of homemaker home health aides, one of the fastest growing occupations, quote, job opportunities are excellent, unquote. Unfortunately, as things now stand, these opportunities are to do exactly the kind of low pay, no benefits, low training, low status jobs in service occupations where women typically get stuck. The kinds of jobs that are a big part of the reason why older women of color are so likely to end up poor. The women who help care for the man in the example I gave get paid $5 an hour 
and they have no health insurance for themselves or for their families. So if we're going to expand paid home health care to meet the demand for elder care, and most experts agree that we must, we have to find a way to raise the compensation and status of these jobs. Otherwise, we'll wind up exploiting one group of women in order to provide better opportunities for another. And since women of color will make up a greater percentage of future elderly women, good job opportunities for them now are essential unless we want to see older women's poverty rates increase in the next century. In the caregiving situation I described, the primary caregivers in her 70s and retired, but as I've said, caregivers' ages vary. Elderly, elder care usually takes place after child care, but there are certainly some women who take care of disabled older relatives and their children at the same time. This group has been aptly named the sandwich generation. But for most women, these different care demands occur in sequence so that the overall effect of population aging is to lengthen the period in a woman's life during which she can expect to be called upon to provide family care. This reverses an important long-term social trend. See, for over a century, the average portion of a woman's life devoted to family care has been shrinking because women have been having fewer children and living longer and longer lives. So until recently, the percentage of women's adult lives focused on caregiving had been getting smaller, and this shrinkage had been associated with women's increased labor force participation and growing economic autonomy. But now, with the growing demand for elder care, at least the potential period for family care seems to be increasing again. So in the year 2000, as in the year 1900, there will be no significant life stages for women that are reliably free of family caregiving demands. A hundred years ago, that situation contributed to women's exclusion from the paid workforce. Today, when our standard of living depends on both women's paid and unpaid care, it underlines the need to find ways to better integrate paid work and family care, to support caregivers, to improve working conditions and wages for paid caregivers, and finally, to redistribute caring work more equally between the sexes. I've laid out a pretty grim picture here of the devastating consequences of population aging for women and for our society at large. We're facing much greater numbers of older women who are likely to be poor or near poor in an expanding group of very elderly disabled people who need care that we aren't set up to provide in an equitable or efficient manner. Both of these situ situations threaten to set back the social and political gains women have made in the last century. I want to leave you with some ideas about how to avoid these hardships and inequities and how we might use the necessary changes brought on by the aging trend to make good on our society's promise of gender equity. First, we have to realize that the aging trend itself isn't inherently good or bad. Generalized pessimism about the declining vitality of a once youthful nation only obscures the real problems and the potential for positive change. After all, were things necessarily better for women or for men in times of high fertility and shorter life expectancies? The quality of an aging society depends, depends on our response to it. So here are some ways to address the problems that I've highlighted. 
We should redesign Social Security and pension policies to more accurately reflect and fairly credit the work lives of women. Possible strategies include assigning pension credit for family care, calculating benefits on fewer years of paid work so that women who took time out for caregiving aren't penalized, and devising ways for spouses to pool retirement credits. We should also make sure that Social Security and pension credits are being earned by the growing numbers of part-time and temporary workers and by all those home health care workers we need. We should rigorously enforce anti-discrimination laws so that women have better training and job opportunities. And we also need to explore policies to promote equal pay for jobs of comparable worth, as long as women in the workforce remain segregated in low-paying so-called female occupations the wage-based social security system can't provide economic security for women in old age. Comparable worth strategies, which would equalize men and women's earnings, also would tend to reduce the economic disincentive for men to participate equally in family care. We also have to create a comprehensive national caregiving policy that includes care for the disabled elderly as well as child care. And this might be approached through the health care system. In fact, one of Hillary Rodham Clinton's health policy groups is studying long-term care. It could also happen through other human service and human resource initiatives. It's a policy that has to include some ways to make it possible for women and men to combine family care and paid work. And the family and medical leave law signed by President Clinton in January is a step in the right direction. We need many more policies of this kind. Ensuring that growing numbers of disabled elderly people receive care without further burdening women is going to cost something. But consider the social cost of not doing this. We also have to realign our health care priorities. Studies have shown that we could save years of healthy life and save money by targeting preventive care to high-risk groups of elderly women. It's encouraging that the administration seems to be emphasizing primary care and preventive care for families in its health care plan. We have to make sure that this includes preventive care for older women. If we're going to adjust to our older society, we'll have to give up some old ways of thinking. The other day, I was talking to a man who studies Social Security policy. We were discussing the high rates of poverty among elderly women, elderly single women. And finally, he blurted out, but anyway, isn't the real problem that they aren't married? I suggested that he imagine what would happen if the situation were reversed. Imagine everything in our society is the same, except it happens that men generally outlive women, live alone in old age, and tend to be poor. Hmm. Would we focus on their marital status as the key to their economic security? I don't think so. I think we'd try to discover what about our work and retirement systems tended to disadvantage men in old age, and I think we'd go about fixing those systems. I've talked about a lot of different issues here today about elderly women's economic struggles, the unequal distribution of caring work, the growing numbers of disabled elderly people, the low pay and low status of caregiving jobs, the high rates of poverty among older women of color, the need to provide more preventive health care. The message I want to leave you with is that in an aging society, all of these problems get more pressing. If we don't address them, a lot of women's lives are going to get a lot harder. And finally, 
I think all of this suggests some really difficult questions about the whole notion of independence and autonomy that's the traditional basis of full citizenship in our political system. See, there is a conflict between the caring, cooperative approach to life to which women are still socialized and a society that doesn't value that approach, even though it depends on it. Most of the social and political gains that women have made in this century have been based on a perception of their increased autonomy. But in order to maintain a high quality of life for all of our citizens in an aging society, we'll have to promote an ethic of care based on a sense of interdependence. Now, how can we promote both gender equity and this ethic of care? How can we free women from the constraints of traditional caregiving roles and at the same time recreate and expand those roles to sustain a growing disabled population? These are big questions, and they don't have easy answers. I want to thank you for letting me discuss them with you. You have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And our guest today is Jesse Allen, director of the Project on Women and Population Aging at the Southport Institute for Policy Analysis, and co-editor of Women on the Front Lines, Meeting the Challenge of an Aging America. And now, Ms. Allen, will you return to the podium, please? I'd like to begin with this question. You brought with you today a copy of the Wall Street Journal, and we saw that a front page story carried a story on Clinton's health plan and the huge costs and decisions surrounding a person's last days. Could you comment on this story, please? Yes, I was very interested when I picked up this uh, copy of the Wall Street Journal in my hotel because right above the fold on the front page of the journal, here's this headline, Clinton's health plan must face huge costs of a person's last days. And there's a very informative, very good article about difficult decisions about the incredibly high cost of medical technology and should we always do absolutely everything to extend a person's life when they're older or when do we know how to stop and how do other countries do it? And it's all very good and they're important questions. But the thing that I noticed is that in this entire article, they mention four elderly people. They mention a man in his 80s who has a coronary problem, a man in his 80s who needs renal dialysis and can't get it in England, a man in his 70s who is in the hospital, and Hillary Rodham Clinton's father in his 80s. So the four people in their 70s and 80s that they mention are all men. And if you read this article and you didn't know that three quarters of people 85 and older were women, you'd think that this was mostly a set of issues for men. So I don't think anyone sat down and said, now we're going to cut women out of this story. I don't think that at all. But I just want to point out that this is how it happens. Here's a front page journal article, 1993, and it still gives you the impression that these are not only not women's issues, but mostly men's issues. So I just wanted to point that out. Thank you. <laughs> Question from our audience. Are other countries facing similar situations, uh, social situations? How do they cope with it? Yes, a lot of other countries are. Well, first of all, every country is expected to eventually 
be facing this situation, and that's really fascinating. In fact, I just read an article in uh, Scientific American, I think, that a lot of demographers now think that the issue of population aging worldwide has surpassed the issue of the so-called population explosion or overpopulation as the most critical demographic issue in the whole world. But right now, it's only the so-called Western or developed or industrialized societies that are facing this problem immediately. Uh, in Western Europe, in this country, in Canada, in Japan, and to some extent in China, uh, these issues are all taking hold, and they do address them differently. Not necessarily always better. I don't want to say that it's always better somewhere else. And also, I'm not an expert in international comparisons at all. But I can just tell you that in general, in the Western European countries, for example, uh, there's more of a social safety net that's built in through higher taxes uh, that, for example, provides health care to everyone and provides some stipends for long-term care. Although it's interesting that in the countries that child care advocates have been able to point to and say, look, uh, there's a lot more liberal leave policies, paid employment leave, for example, to take care of children. You don't find those kind of leaves to take care of elderly family members. So they are facing some real difficult issues there. Thank you. Do you foresee the day when Medicaid will cover the $14,000 per year to care for the 86-year-old patient you mentioned at home, recognizing that a savings of $26,000 would be realized? Well, in some states, uh, Medicaid is able to cover home health care through special waivers. In New York State, for a long time, there's been a, an extensive home health care program that Medicaid has covered. However, in these very states are having enormous budgetary problems, and there's a story that I cut out of the New York Times a month or so ago that Governor Cuomo of New York is trying to scale back that very program because of the big costs, and this happens every year. So. Again, it's a push and a pull between the people who recognize the importance and, in fact, the savings of these things and the people who look at the very increasing costs as the population ages. Another thing is that home health care isn't the whole answer because when you get to very intensive levels of care, for instance, if somebody would need 24-hour paid home health care, that begins to be much more expensive than care in a nursing home. It reverses. So we have to come up with a lot of different ways to take care of different situations and begin to offer some choices to caregivers, not to relieve them of all of their care. Most unpaid family caregivers don't want to step back and not do anything. That's a real myth. What they want is to be able to do as much as they can and to get the support that makes that possible. Thank you. Another question. Would you address, please, the home health care workers' need for Social Security and the willingness of upper middle class employers uh, to pay for this. And this person is citing Zoe Baird. Yeah, well, um, my mother told me that she was paying the Social Security on uh, her workers' uh, pay. And I said, that's a good thing, because I know you're planning to run for attorney general soon. <laughs> but uh, obviously, this is something that private employers should do. But I think we saw in the situation that was raised with the debacle over the two attorneys general nominated who didn't make it, that 
the way in which this is being handled makes it extremely difficult, even if, if people want to do this. But the point is that we've justified marginalizing home health care jobs and not paying benefits of any kind on them because they've been these sort of on-the-edge occupations, and we have to start recognizing the value of these jobs and creating real benefit structures for them, not just Social Security, but some private pension money also, and certainly health insurance. Thank you. A number of questions about stereotypes, and here is one. How do we change attitudes that say women do all the family stuff or should do it all, and how do we redistribute family responsibilities between men and women? Boy, good question. <laughs> I guess if I had the answer to that, I don't know. I'd be floating off the, this podium right now. I think the first thing we have to do is look at the problem directly and acknowledge that it is a real inequity and that it is still going on, that it's not okay the way it is. And it's amazing to me how much of the popular media and images don't acknowledge that. And it's a very complicated thing. You know, a lot of studies, for example, of the causes of the wage gap between women and men in uh, the labor force talk about women's choice to focus on family care instead of paid work or women's choice uh, not to invest more in paid work or education for paid work or training and therefore it's a rational economic uh, result that they earn less. On the other hand, there are all these studies that say, no, 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 the unpaid caregiving work doesn't have anything to do with the wage gap. It, that is, you know, a strict, it, that's an artifact, and it's just that the employers think that women care more about family care, and so they discriminate against them and create these low-status jobs and sort of shunt them into that. And in fact, women are taking less and less time off, and when they do take time off, the wages bounce back really quickly. There's sort of this ideological struggle going on that ignores, to me, the sort of common sense reality of the enormous impact that this situation still has. So I don't have the answer to that one, but I think a start would be to start really talking about it and looking at it and admitting that it's a real big problem. Thank you. Can you speak of any differences in the trends that you've cited between urban and rural America, and how does the aging of our society impact women in these areas? Boy, there are big differences, and I have to admit to you that I don't really know what they are. This is one area that I'm not very uh, good with. I do know that in some rural communities, there are very high proportions of elderly people because uh, the trend has been for younger people to move away from family farms, for example, to go work in the cities, so that many of our rural communities have extremely high uh, proportions of elderly people that they're coping with, and at the same time, those people are very isolated because they live a long distance from each other. So I know that that's a real problem. Uh, however, certainly the elderly in urban settings have a lot of difficulty as well. Thank you. Someone asks, a very great proportion of elderly women have talents and skills to contribute to the productivity and needs of society. Do you think they will ever be given the opportunity to, the opportunity to perform continuing paid work? Recognition of value seems to depend largely on whether work is paid for or free. Well, I think that, that one possible hopeful sign is that because we're going to have more and more older women, we're going to need them more and more to be productive. A lot of people are waking up to the fact that we're writing off 
a large portion of a potentially productive uh, population, and we can't afford to do that anymore. Uh, in this book that I edited, there's a, a wonderful chapter by a woman named Ruth Jacobs that addresses the ways to change social roles for older women and talks about the resistance to those changes and the stereotypes that prohibit it about older women's incompetence and uh, rigidity and things like that, all of which are not true. But I think that the possible impetus for changing it may come from the fact that, especially in the next two or three decades, when we begin to see so many more older women, that people will begin to realize that it, not just out of altruism, but because we need the productive efforts of those women, they'll be given more opportunity. Thank you. We have time for one more question. Um, what advice would you give women um, in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, <laughs> 70s, up as they look ahead to, uh, to <laughs> in five minutes or less. Um, what kinds of issues should women and men be considering during these stages of life? As oh, women and ahead? men in all those yeah. stages. Okay. Uh, let's take the women. The main thing I would say is that it appalls me that I still think that even girls today are still being given the message that in some way somebody else is going to take care of them. Even though there are all these images about, you know, you're going to go out and work for yourself, and somehow the message still gets across. It isn't really as important what you do in the workforce. It isn't really as important what your career is. It isn't really as important that you study calculus or biology because somewhere along the line, you're gonna kinda just have this man taking care of you forever. And it isn't the case, and it isn't, has not been the case. Women are gonna spend a large portion of their life alone, whether they want to or not. And young women have to recognize that and begin to plan for a very long life, some of which they will be by themselves for. Ms. Allen, Ms. Allen, we thank you very much for being with us today, speaking on something so important. Thank, thank you for you. coming. Thank you all.